The Word of God says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on, on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And this is the word of the Lord. So as we dive into chapter 12 of Exodus and we've walked through these nine plagues, um, we come to this epicenter of um, texts in scripture. When I mean epicenter, so much comes back to Exodus chapter 12. In no way are we going to do justice to it in this short amount of time, but I want to touch on just a few things that I trust will um, just whet your appetite to desire so much more. And please dive in and go further. Let's call this episode, We Need a Lamb. We need a lamb because every household needed a lamb or sure judgment was coming. And you know, the same thing is true for you. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, there, there's a gift that I love receiving or I'll just go buy it myself and I love receiving it that way too. It, it's, I, I get excited really every single time that I receive this gift or get this gift. And, and that, is, um, that is this, just a, a simple blank notebook, a, a notebook with no stories written in it, no memories recorded. Uh, and why? Because of the potential that lies within these pages. What's going to be written? What inspiration is going to come? What is God going to teach me? What memories will have happened that are now being penned on paper? Oh, the, the joy, the, the, the beauty of a blank notebook. Um, and, and yet that's really what we have here in Exodus chapter 12. This is the beauty of it. There is a new start. And that's the first thing we're going to see is a new start. And then we'll move on and see a needed savior and the next step. But this new start, well, where does that happen? It happens right at the beginning in verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. When it says the beginning of months, it's literally this head of months. Um, I, I have to differentiate here because I think there's a really important point to make. If you know the Jewish calendar, you know that their new year, Rosh Hashanah, does not happen in the month of Nisan, which is the month being spoken of here in Exodus 12. So you could say, well, why is the seventh month becoming the first month? Why is there this 
new head of the year because that's not the way it's currently celebrated. And, and I think this point is very easily made in any culture, any cultural background that you come from. I'll explain. You see, you have a lot of beginning of the years. You have a, a beginning of the actual calendar year. You have a beginning of the academic year. You have a beginning of athletic seasons. You may, might have a different beginning of the fiscal year. You see, oftentimes um, the fiscal year might, might end on June 30th and start on July 1st or some other date during the year. I've never been to any country in the world where their academic calendar starts on January 1st. January, sure, but not January 1st. The point being is we have different calendars for different aspects of life. But what is God saying here? He's saying this event restarts, or not just restarts, it gives you a new beginning. There is a fresh start. There is a fresh freedom that you are going to enjoy. And so keep this in mind that what we're talking about brings a new start, not only to the lives of the Jews in this passage, but to your life as well. Because you're going to see that the invitation, that the, the, the need presented in this portion of scripture is also true of your life. And so it's going to be the head of months for you, the beginning of months. Um, but then going on, notice that, uh, that this new start is going to involve some other things. It's going to involve a new feast. It's going to involve a new attire in this context right here. It's going to involve a different sacrifice than they were currently practicing in Egypt. And so we'll walk through that as we go. So there's a new start. Uh, but where we want to spend most of our time is the second point, which is a needed savior. A needed Savior. And as we walk through the needed Savior, what I want to do is just kind of walk through these 14 verses very quickly and look at 10 aspects of this needed Savior and how beautiful this is. Now, I will note from the very beginning that I'm not going to go into um, all the details of how it pictures Christ until we get to the 10th point, which I'll go ahead and give it to you, is symbolism, symbolism of the Lamb. And then we'll kind of go back and see all these pictures of Christ. So if you think I'm, I'm passing over something really obvious and it's, it's just like, bring out Jesus. Don't worry, we'll get there. I trust we'll get there. And if we don't get there, please share with me pictures of Christ you see in these 14 verses that we just passed over and didn't dive into because any glimpse of Christ is that which gets me excited and I would love to learn from you. So leave it in the comments or just send me a message, whatever it might be. But the first thing we see as we walk through this text is the selection of the lamb, the selection of the lamb. Uh, in other words, there was a specific date on which this lamb was chosen. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, this is verse three, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So you see very specifically that it's on the 10th day of the month that they are selecting this lamb. It's important, though, for us to see a little bit of the verbiage happening um, in verses 3 through 5. You notice in verse 3 it says, Every man shall take a lamb, a lamb, according to their father's house. And then in verse 4 it starts out, If the household is too small for a lamb. So we have a lamb in verses 3 and 4. But then at the end of verse 4, what do we see? It says, um, According to what each can eat, you shall make your own count for the lamb. So we had a lamb, a lamb, now we have the lamb. And then what do we see in verse five? It says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. Please note this progression. We have a lamb, 
we have the lamb and then we have your lamb. This is so vital because in this we really see uh, we, we see the reality for our life and the decision that we must make too. You see, um, a lamb, a lamb, when they went out to the pasture or when they went to the market to buy that lamb, there were a plethora of lambs to choose from, but they were looking for that lamb, a lamb without blemish, one without spot, one that was at least a year old, a male, and we'll see that in a little bit. But notice, it was just a lamb at that point. Oh, we'll take a lamb. Oh, we'll take that lamb. Then there was a selection, a specific selection. But in that selection, it then became their lamb. There was a personal connection. Well, we know that we needed our sins dealt with, but it's not a matter of having a lamb. You see, there's only one who can take away the sin of the world. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The. But the question I want to ask you, is he, is he your Lamb? Is he your Lamb who's taken away your sins? He's dealt with your sins. But have you accepted his sacrifice? Have you allowed the blood that he shed for you to be applied to your life. And so there's a selection of the lamb. But then also notice there's a sufficiency of the lamb, a sufficiency of the lamb. And we see that very clearly in verse four. It says, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take, and it goes on. If a household is too small for a lamb, please note what it does not say. It does not say, if the lamb is too small for the household, then you need to find a bigger lamb does not say that. It says, if the household is too small for the lamb, please understand this important point. The lamb was sufficient. Sometimes the household was small, so they would come together to, uh, to, to feast on that same lamb, but the lamb was always sufficient. And friends, that's true for you today. Whatever sin you may have in your life, whatever rebellion, whatever uh, form of obstinance towards God, whatever it might be, no matter how broken apart your life is as you're listening to this, just know that the lamb is sufficient for whatever you bring to the table. Why? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So there is a sufficiency in the lamb. Isn't it interesting that back in Genesis, it was a lamb for an individual. And we see that all the way back with Abel. And now we have a lamb for a household. And then in Leviticus, we're going to see a lamb slain for a nation. But then what do we have in the Gospels? We have, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is slain for the world. So the selection of the lamb, the sufficiency of the lamb. And then we move on and we see the specifications of the lamb. And what were the specifications? Well, there's a few mentioned in verse 5. Without blemish, a male um, and a year old. And you're going to take it from the sheep or the goats. Now, we'll go into this a little later when we see Christ in all of this. But I just want you to note that there were very specific things they were looking for. And when we come to Christ, we're going to recognize that not only does he fulfill all of these specifications, but beyond that, how many prophecies, over 300 prophecies of this Messiah that we see recorded in Scripture where Christ perfectly fulfilled each one. 
I'm not going into that. Just want you to note there were specifications of the Lamb. Same thing is true for the Lamb of God, even more for the Lamb of God. And then there we see that there is a statement of the Lamb. This is very important, a statement of the Lamb. I want to suggest there were three statements. There were probably a lot more. Feel free to find more and share them with me or, um, or, or just, uh, just look through and, and, and see the implications of these three statements. But what statements were being made um, by having this Lamb in front of your door for four days before it was sacrificed? Understand the cultural context of what's going on. The first thing, first statement that this would make is a public renouncing of the Egyptian gods. Then we're going to see there's a public rebellion against the throne of Pharaoh. And finally, there's a public recognition of their own guilt. But the public renouncing of Egyptian gods, remember back in chapter 8, verses 25 to 27, when that fourth plague hits and Pharaoh's like, fine, you can go, but just you have to stay in the land. And Moses says, we can't stay in the land because the very sacrifices that we offer are an abomination to you and you're going to stone us for it. In other words, we're not allowed to be killing these animals. Well, why? Because they picture some of your deities. These are animals that you revere because somehow in them you think there is a God. Um, but by having that animal in front of your house, by having that animal ready to be sacrificed for four days in this process of waiting, and then you're literally slaying this animal on the threshold of your home, the blood is shed in front of your Egyptian neighbors, this is a public renouncing of Egyptian gods, but even more than just that, it's also a public rebellion against the throne of Pharaoh. Why? Pharaoh was regarded as a son of the gods, so a very god himself. And what are these uh, Israelites doing? They're literally in front of the eyes of the Egyptians saying, not only do we not believe what you believe, but we are going to go contrary to it in your face. This is a public statement. I always tell people that faith in Christ, it is a personal faith. It's your lamb, but it's not a private faith. A personal faith, but a private faith. Let me ask you, are you trying to make your faith in Jesus Christ a private faith? It's not. There's no private, and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, going to all the world, and what? Make disciples of who? Of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Oh, friends, it is not a private faith. I'll say it one more time. It is not a private faith. There's a statement being made. But there's also a third aspect of that statement. That's a public recognition of guilt. By sacrificing the lamb, what are they declaring? We need a substitution. When that angel of death, that destroyer comes through, see, we're in line to have death hit our home. Why? Because we're guilty right alongside the Egyptians. They all needed a lamb. And so there's a statement being made of having this lamb. But then we move on to the fifth aspect of this needed savior, and that is that there was a sacrifice of the lamb. See, the lamb had to be killed. It had to be killed. And again, we'll come back to this in a little bit, but um, how it was cooked, even the spits that it was cooked on, all this was very important to the Jewish people. Now, the, the, the text um, says that they're going to eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, and then the things that are going to accompany it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Uh, it goes on. There are the, the sacrifices 
sacrifice of the lamb, how it had to be killed, how it had to be prepared. I'll leave that there. Then we see the sign of the lamb. This is very interesting, the sign of the lamb. What was the sign of the lamb? Well, it tells us um, what they were to do is they were to, I think it's back in verse 7, yes. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So the sign of the lamb. They're going to take the blood after they sacrifice it and with a hyssop branch, which we'll see later on in the passage, uh, I think it's verse 22, they're going to put the blood on the sides of the door and above the door. And then notice it says in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. This is interesting. It says a sign for you. It doesn't say a sign for God, and it doesn't even say a sign for the Egyptians. I, I think it was uh, a definite statement to the Egyptians, and, and certainly um, God sees the blood, and so we could say in a sense it was a sign, but it was a sign for them. And this makes me think, and by the way, there is quite a bit of debate, which you may have never even thought about um, this debate, but some debate was the blood on the outside of the door or on the inside of the door. Either way, it's a statement because they're killing the, the, this, this lamb on the threshold. But, um, but hang on, like, what, like what, what side was it on? It, first of all, um, there's implications to both. Was it a sign for them so they would look up at the door and they would see it as they're inside? Yes, the blood is on our doorpost as they stay in that house. Or was it from the outside as the angel of death passes over, there's a sign and the blood is on the doorpost. And, and Jewish commentators are divided. Well, could it be both? Maybe it was. I think we all have pictured in our mind or most of us have pictured in our mind just the outside of the door is where the blood was. Um, in the end, the point is the blood was applied. And so I don't want to beleaguer this point too much, but I do want you to see that it was a sign for them. It doesn't say it was a sign for God um, in verse 13. But it does say in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And we'll come to that. This is just so beautiful. So we see the sign of the lamb. Then we see the substitution of the lamb. And what's the substitution of the lamb? Well, in verse 12, he says he's going to pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so we see the substitution of the lamb. The firstborn was in line to die, period. Whatever home it was in, and even if it was a beast, the firstborn was in line to die. No one disputed guilt in this passage. No one said, unless this is the case, everyone was guilty under God's condition, under God's um, holiness, under, uh, under the, the, the reality of sin. Everyone needed a lamb. We need a lamb. And so substitution of the lamb is seen here. But now when we come to number eight on this list of 10, I want to spend a little time because some of you, this is what you need to hear. Please don't miss this. This is what you need to hear. The security in the lamb, the security found in the lamb. Notice the word of God says in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It doesn't say when I see the bitter herbs prepared just right, when I see that lamb was just roasted in the way I declared, when I look at you and see that you're actually remorseful, when I look at you and see that you're awake, when I look at you and see that you're solemn, no. 
None of that. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I want you to understand what brings salvation for every soul on that Passover night. It was one thing that God was looking for. Was or was not the blood applied to the doorpost of the home? See, their salvation was not in their confidence. It wasn't on if they were certain that it was going to work. It was, did they obey what God had said and put the blood on the doorpost? Sometimes I like to picture two different uh, Jewish homes, Israelite homes that night. And in one home, they have that firstborn that's behind the door and he's terrified. The blood has been applied to the doorpost, but he's terrified. Will it work or won't it work? When that angel of death comes, will I be struck down? Did we do everything right? And he can't sleep and he's just worried to the core. Is this my last night on earth? Next door, there's another firstborn. And this firstborn says, ah, nothing to worry about. Let's celebrate. God has provided provision. The blood's been applied to our doorpost. There's nothing to worry about. And the angel of death comes through. And I ask you the question, which of those two firstborns died? The answer is neither. Neither one died. Why? They both had the blood applied. But you say, but one had no confidence. The other had absolute confidence. Sure. But it wasn't about how confident they were. It was about whether or not the blood of the lamb had been applied to the doorpost of their home. When I look at those who are walking or in Christ, I see many who are enjoying their salvation. Why? Because they know the character of their God. They know of his faithfulness. And, and frankly, uh, I see many who are living in fear. Why? Because they don't really have confidence in the salvation that's been promised them, even though they've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about just praying some prayer or, or reciting some creed. I'm talking about they are trusting Jesus, and yet they're not enjoying their salvation. Why? Because they're focused on so many other things. The reality is this in your life and in mine. Salvation is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Period. It's not on works of righteousness that we've done. It's not on our performance. It's not in how confident we are. Rather, it's in who are we trusting? If you're born again because of the work of Jesus Christ and you're a new creation in him, you're not going to be unborn. You're not going to be unadopted. And this is where I want to make a differentiation between eternal security and assurance of salvation. God wants his children to enjoy assurance of salvation. When you read 1 John chapter 5, really 1 John in general, it says, so that you may know you have eternal life. God wants you to know you have eternal life. But eternal security, from God's perspective, assurance of salvation is more from man's perspective. But eternal security is based on God's faithfulness to his word. Our assurance of salvation is, is more based on our faith in God's word. You see, eternal security is fixed. Why? Because it's what Christ has promised because of his finished, his forever and fully finished work on the cross of Calvary. Oftentimes, assurance of salvation fluctuates. Why? Because we focus on our confession instead of his cross. This is so important. How many times people get a Bible and they write in the front of their Bible this date that they prayed a prayer or asked Jesus to save them, whatever, and they're looking at that date like that is when I was saved. 
but then they start to wonder, did I do it right? Did I say the right words? Did I miss something? I always say, you didn't say the right words because there weren't right words to say. Friends, when you want to remember, are you or are you not saved? Don't look back some 20, 30 years or three years when you made some profession of faith. Go back to the cross of Calvary and ask the question, did the Lamb of God, was he qualified? Was he sufficient? Did he do it right? And the reality, our faith is placed in a perfect sacrifice. And I'm trusting that sacrifice alone to forgive me my sins, to give me eternal life and a relationship with God. See, eternal security is promised in the word of God when you come to Jesus Christ. No one can snatch you out of his hand. He writes these things that we might know we have eternal life. Assurance of salvation, however, are you trusting what God has said? Are you enjoying who this God is, a God who does not lie? I love Hebrews 6 verses 17 through 20, where we read that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And it goes on. Wow, how beautiful that is. Um, there's so much we could say on this, but just remember that if you're in Christ, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, as it says in Ephesians 1.14. And of course, read sometime Romans 8 verses 31 through 39. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's not saying, oh, you didn't quite put enough blood on the right side of the doorpost oh man just you messed up with those bitter herbs you know i, I thought you were gonna get in but uh, those bitter herbs were off just a little bit now when i see the blood i will pass over you it wasn't in their confidence and it was not in their contribution either. It wasn't in what they added to the lamb the spices they put on that lamb even how they prepared the lamb you see that lamb without blemish was slain on their behalf. And this leads us to the ninth thing, the shelter of the lamb, the shelter of the lamb. See, it's not just our security eternally, but what a shelter it is in a world that desperately needs hope. See, to continually come back to the gospel in everyday life, that's why we can rejoice amidst our circumstances. We can forgive in spite of the pain that we're walking through. We can show mercy even at a great cost to ourselves. We can have hope even when it seems the foundations of everything in this world are shaken. What a shelter we have in Christ. Elizabeth Cliffon, she only lived to her 39th birthday. But um, actually, that's my next birthday coming up very soon if the Lord allows me to live that long. But she lived a life of great pain, physical pain, that is. And um, she, she wrote some songs, but there was one song she authored right before her death. In fact, it wasn't even published till three years after her death. Uh, she 
had entitled this hymn, Breathings on the Border, I believe referring to the border of death, uh, ultimately eternal life, Breathings on the Border, but uh, many of us are familiar with it because we also call it Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And it's a very paradoxical um, language, if you're not familiar with it, where it's talking about the cross of Christ, and yet it, it refers to it as the shadow of a mighty rock, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way, a happy shelter, a refuge, tried and sweet, a trysting place, a ladder up to heaven. Interesting language for an instrument of death, but I want you to, to hear these words. O safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet, O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet, as to the pilgrim patriarch that wondrous dream was given, so seems my Savior's cross to me, a ladder up to heaven. I love that. O safe and happy shelter. Wow. But trysting place, what is a trysting place? A trysting place is a meeting place. It's a rendezvous, a point of a rendezvous, a pre-appointed meeting. This is the Passover. It's a pre-appointed meeting where God's wrath and judgment and God's mercy intersected. And where? At the doorpost of the home, more specifically at the blood of the Lamb. Well, that leads us to this tenth and final point of uh, a needed Savior, and that is the symbolism of the Lamb. See, this is all about Jesus. Um, this is all about Jesus. And, and this is where I, I want you to clearly see Christ, Christ as our ultimate Passover Lamb. Christ, our ultimate Passover Lamb. We know there is no question of whether the Passover lamb pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But let's take a closer look at Christ as the ultimate Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12. Just as the death of the Passover lamb marked a fresh start, freedom, and a new beginning, so it is with Christ. Jesus, our Passover lamb, takes us from death to life, and we know if anyone be in Christ, they are now a new creation. We learn in Exodus 12, verse 3, just as the Passover lamb was to be selected on the 10th day of the now first month, Christ made his entry into Jerusalem on that very day, the 10th day of Nisan. Now consider the scene. As thousands chose their lamb for the upcoming Passover, Christ stood before and among them as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Though unknowingly, many did take part in sacrificing the ultimate Passover lamb, and because of sin, it was because of all of this, the lamb ultimately died. And why? Well, for the next four days, the lamb was to be examined, as was Christ. And though the Roman and the Jewish courts tried it and falsely accused our Savior, no flaw, guilt, sin, guile was found in him. Though it was possible for a household to be too small for a lamb, Exodus chapter 12 verse 4 tells us it was impossible that the lamb would be too small for the household. Likewise, Christ, regardless of our sinful past, rebellion, obstinance, the lamb of God has dealt with the sin of the world. Every single 
one. Now, now we're told in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Now, indeed, Christ was a male, but more than that represents all of mankind. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Christ, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then a few verses down in that same text, uh, verse 45, it calls Jesus the last Adam, furthermore, without blemish. Peter said of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's pretty clear, isn't it? This is reiterated in the very next chapter in 1 Peter where we read, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, just in case we missed it the first time. We also learned this lamb was a year old. What is that picture? Well, a lamb who's a year old can now be breeded. No longer is this creature just a child, but this creature is in the prime of life. Christ began his earthly ministry at 30 years of age. The, the same age when one could serve as a priest. Full maturity of age, prime of life. And just as he laid down his life for mankind, well, a lamb without blemish, a male in the prime of life. Well, that's what had to be offered at the Passover. But notice the precision of Exodus 12, verse six. It says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Think of this, the 14th day. When we know Christ rose from the dead on the 17th of Nisan on the third day. What's the third day? 14th to 15th, 15th to 16th, 16th to 17th. Picture the scene. The Lord Jesus was also sacrificed at the time the Passover lambs were being killed. In celebration of that first exodus, as Jesus led a people to freedom through his ultimate exodus, like Luke 9.30 speaks of. You see, the veil in the temple separating man and God was torn into access to God, not just deliverance from man, but, but notice at twilight, a phrase which means between the two evenings. The Jews divided the day in the morning, um, so noon would be the sixth hour of the day, and between the two evenings would be somewhere around 3 p.m. or the ninth hour. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly when the Passover lamb was to be slain, and that's exactly what Matthew 27, 46 tells us. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please don't miss the reality that these lambs had to die. Likewise, Jesus had to die. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Of course, not for any fault that these Passover lambs had done, but for the sins of the ones who were killing them. How beautifully this picture is our Savior. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6 of that same chapter tells us all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. 
But now in the Jewish Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral traditions, it's recorded that the Passover lamb, when it was roasted, it was put on, on these two wooden or pomegranate spits that were placed at right angles in the shape of a cross. Imagine what a picture of Calvary. This is all about Jesus. Even in the death of the lamb, God specifies later on in Exodus 12, verse 46, that the children of Israel are not to take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. What does John 19, 32 to 36 tell us? So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But he goes on to tell us that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken and let me just clarify, the prophecy being fulfilled there in John, it's not directly referring to Exodus 12, 46, but rather more specifically to Psalm 34, 20. But moving on in the text, in Exodus 12, 7, we learn, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So, so picture this, blood-stained wood. You got it? Blood above blood on the sides. Is the picture clear yet? How can we miss the cross of Christ? Does this not get you excited? The children of Israel had to enter their house through the blood-stained door in order to be saved. They had to go by the way of the cross through the door. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the parallel just continues in Exodus chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in, in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything, anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Think, think on this. The sacrifice was to be consumed, utterly consumed, all of it. This was not about a partial acceptance. It was about a, a full entering in. Jesus used similar language in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 56, where he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. You have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And then verse 56 says, whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks on my blood, abides in me, and I in him. And don't misunderstand Christ. He's saying, if you want life, if you want to be spared judgment, this strike, this plague, which is coming on the world because of sin, he is your Passover lamb. Perfect life, substitutionary death on your behalf, his triumphant resurrection, this is all that brings us hope, our only hope. 
Did you notice who was in line to die? In chapter 12 of Exodus 12, it tells us, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Get that, I will strike all the firstborn. Is it any wonder that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? His only son. See, just as the Israelites would be spared a certain death, uh, not because of any good work they might do, but because they were under the blood, so we too have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. <laughs> but how glorious is Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, we're told in Exodus 12, 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Beloved, it is no different for those in Christ. When we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not only are we forgiven, there's no charge against us. We are told that the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless, literally, this is not a, a not guilty charge, which would be wonderful, but, but why is it even more? It means no charge even against us. When God sees the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb, he passes over, he's fully pleased. Soak in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 15, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, oh that phrase, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. But, but wait, 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 the mediator of the new covenant? Does it strike you odd that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, God institutes a celebration? This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Look, the Exodus hasn't even happened yet in Exodus 12, 14, and still there is a feast to celebrate, a new beginning to remember, remembering that which hasn't even happened. Does this sound familiar? What did Jesus do on the night of his sacrifice as our Passover lamb? He instituted a feast as well. Mark, uh, mark his words that he says in Luke 22:20, 20, where this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. Why is this so important? Because of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See, it's pulling us back to this. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this, 
get this. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will remember their sin no more. This is the heart of the new covenant, friends. This is all about our new beginning. And why? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, remember me. Because of Christ, the ultimate Passover Lamb, we have hope. So we have only begun to see the parallels. As we continue our journey through Exodus 12, we'll see Christ in other ways. We'll see Christ clearly more deeply in similar ways. But this ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, will continually jump off the pages of Scripture. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our final point is the next step. What is the next step? Well, the next step is a question I have for you. Have you resisted or are you resting in the blood of the Lamb who was slain for you? See, I don't know what your situation is listening to this podcast today, but are you resting? Are you resting knowing the blood of the Lamb of God has been applied to the doorpost of your home, your life? And you might say, well, what does that look like? Well, obviously, you're not going out and killing a lamb. Why? Because the, the, the blood of bulls and of goats can never take away the sin of the world. It just covered it for a time. But Jesus Christ takes away forever your sin, separates it as far as the east is from the west, two things that never meet. My friends, you are offered an invitation today to have a new beginning, a fresh start. And where? Well, God wants to give you New pages to write on, but it's not just new pages. It's a new life. It's a new identity. His child forever co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And if you already are in Christ, are you enjoying your salvation? Are you resting in the word of God that promises, when I see the blood, I will pass over? When that moment of death comes and you breathe your last, or as Elizabeth Clefon called her hymn, Breathing's on the border. When you're breathing on the border, have you received the blood that was shed for you? It leads me to a song I want to close with. It was written by John Foote and Elisha Hoffman. Elisha Hoffman wrote the song Leaning on the Everlasting Arms you might be familiar with. But um, it's a great song, not very well known. It's called When I See the Blood. And the chorus literally repeats, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. It's so simple, but listen to the words of a couple of the verses. The first verse says, Christ our Redeemer died on the cross, died for the sinner, paid all his due. Sprinkle your soul with the blood of the Lamb, and I will pass, will pass over you. And the third verse says this, and friends, please don't miss it. Judgment is coming. All will be there, each one receiving justly his due, 
hide in the saving, sin-cleansing blood, and I will pass, will pass over you. Friends, go back to that notebook. Blank pages. A new story. It's being offered you today. What will you do with the Lamb? This has been Into Your Bible, and I thank you for listening. Feel free to go to www.intoyourbible.org for more information, for show notes, for other resources you can access and download, and I hope it'll be an encouragement and blessing to you. And please subscribe to not miss an episode if um, that's something that you do or want to do. But do remember that this is Into Your Bible, and it's a place where we pray that you'll be one of a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.